Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good, good, good. All right, if you guys have Bibles, turn to John chapter 21. And today we are, again, I'm talking about uh, multiplication. And, and again, as we think through these values, we think through these cultures, they're really important to me. Uh, I believe that these things are, um, in so many ways, the irreducible minimums of what the church is called to be in the New Testament. Um, it, it could be called to be more, but I do not think it's called to be less. Uh, I think these things are rooted in this, the story of God, in, in the scriptures, um, again, gospel, that we want to be churches where people encounter the radical grace of Jesus. There are people that spend their entire lives in churches, and they never hear about, in a tangible, ongoing way, the grace of Jesus. I sat with a woman one time who was on staff at a mega church. She'd been in church for 30 years, and, um, and her daughter was involved in a ministry I led, and her daughter was really excited about grace and about the gospel, and she just said, man, I just feel like she's experiencing something I've never even experienced. I've been in church my whole life, and, and I said, what do you mean? She said, do you think, you really think Jesus can forgive anything and that he, he like, he, he, there's no, there's, he doesn't have like his, I think she described like, like his arm out, like you're at arm's length. And I said, no, I mean, he, he died for us. She said, like everything. And I said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, I, I had an abortion when I was in college. And for 30-ish years, she, she, she had not been sure if God had dealt with that sin. This is a woman, 30 years, in an evangelical church, evangelical means like, gospel people, evangelical, like gospel people. She, she didn't know about that radical grace. And so we said, we want to be a church where no one can say that, Lord willing. They, they're, they're fighting to be legalistic. They're fighting to miss out on Jesus. I will not hear about grace. Um, there are churches who, who uh, there are people who, who spend their entire lives in churches where they've never seen anyone love one another like family where churches are a business, an event you go to. Uh, it's, it's either a religious, religious religious ritual you go to or a business that wants your, um, or a, yeah, a business that wants your business. Uh, the worship service is the product they're selling, and they're always trying to make it bigger and better and brighter and cooler. Um, whether or not Jesus is involved doesn't really matter. Um, they got good special effects. They have good speaking, good music. Um, and they've never experienced what it's like to have a place to belong in the family of God that can be talked about. That, 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 that healing can be talked about experiencing the family of God does not happen in an event. It happens in a, in a family. There, there are people who have been in churches their entire life and they never knew that they're called to the adventure of the mission of God and the renewal of God, that, 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 that our life always has meaning and purpose because God wants to, wants to restore us. <laughs> Good word. He wants to renew us and then we renew others. We, as we experience this amazing Relationship with Jesus, there's an adventure to see the whole, all of the world, all the nations of the world come to know Jesus. I got a, a WhatsApp from Kai and Kyle last night, a picture of them. They're unpacking in Tunis, thinking the adventure they're on. Thinking about my kids. When my kids think of church, they think of two, uh, I'm hoping that they'll think of two words, intimacy and adventure. It's some of the closest friends you could ever have, closer than a, a biological brother if they're not a follower of Jesus. So there's intimacy and then adventure. It's go to, a lot of people think church is boring and fake. No, church is intimate. It's an adventure. There's gospel, there's family, there's mission, there's renewal. Um, and, and then because this stuff's really hard, receiving Jesus' love is harder than you realize. This morning I feel so aware of my sin and weakness. I feel incapable almost of receiving his love this morning. I didn't sin in like the scandalous way. Just feel very insecure. Um, 
we, we need the Spirit's help to receive his love, um, and we need the Spirit's help to love one another sacrificially like family, and then to love the world and our, our cities and, and those in our lives, um, to sacrificially love and serve them. We need to depend on the Holy Spirit because it's just real hard, which leads to our last culture of multiplication is we want to do this again and again and again and again. And if you're here today, you need to know that um, you're not a part of a church that came to an event today. Um, you're a part of a movement. You're, you're a part of a gospel movement that spans 2,000 years. And the way that it's been a movement, the way that it's lasted 10,000 years is this idea of multiplication. It's one generation hands the gospel down to the next, and, and another generation hands the gospel down to the next, and it keeps going. It, it multiplies. Um, I, I, we, um, Grant, Michelle, and Jackie and I went to San Francisco um, last year, I guess. Yeah. And we went to, what's that bakery again? Went to the Boudin Bakery. At this point in history, kind of average bread. Uh, it's been a little mass produced. Um, but they talk about the fact that, that all of the bread that's come out of the Boudin Bakery in about 150 years comes from the, what they call the mother dough, uh, the original dough. Uh, that, that, that's been multiplied out over and over and over and that in that, that you can't even recreate it because, um, it, it, it was created uh, like with a certain bacteria and a certain, uh, weather in San Francisco at the time that made, I'm not a big science bread guy, but, um, but, 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 but the, the irreducible, what, what was needed to make it happen happened. And now it's existed forever on out. Like the, the, the reality of what Jesus did once for all time on the cross and in the resurrection and in his ascension happens once that message though is passed on for generations. And, um, and so it multiplies out, you know, thousands, millions of times now, millions of, of, of loaves of bread, that, that millions of people encountering this Jesus. And here's the thing, multiplication is tough for us because multiplication, um, it doesn't look sexy initially. It looks really, really small. Um, I went to Israel uh, in January, and one of the things that sh- just struck me was how small Israel was and the fact that Jesus spent like 90% of his time and only a part of it. Israel is smaller than, than the United States state of New Jersey, which is one of the smaller states. And he stayed in a very small rural region of it. And, and so he didn't have a big speaking platform. He didn't have social media. He didn't have the internet. Um, what he had was um, a couple of dudes he invested in, a couple of gals he invested in. But if you looked at it on paper, it didn't look like the movement you'd pick to win. Rome had the money, the power. Uh, this is a hip hop song. Sorry, it had money, it had power, it had respect. I guess. Um, don't recommend this song. It had weapons. It had a military behind it. It had so much. And this was a movement that that was told, you know, don't turn the other cheek when you're hit. Give your money away. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. These types of teachings coming out of this movement. You just don't pick them to win. They're from the backwoods part of Israel be like a, um, I don't know enough about South Africa, but, but, but just a very random place, a place you go through to get to another place. And, and he invests in this group of people, and as he invests in this group of people, um, there's a quality to the investment, and that quality turns into quantity. They, they really have this message. We know um, that, that, that the gospel spread all the way into what is now Asia, and it went all the way into what is now Europe, and it went into Africa, hit three continents when it was very hard to travel, it's very hard to do all that stuff. Uh, there's arguments over, did St. Thomas get all the way to India? We're for, we know for sure he got to Iran, to Persia. And then we have other guys going into Egypt and, and into Ethiopia. And we have guys going to um, Greece and Turkey and, and on and on and on it goes. 
um, uh, right? But it starts as 12, but, but, but it takes time. But again, this is what Jesus' method. Um, Jesus, we don't have very many of Jesus' sermons. I don't know if you've thought about that. Again, they'd be, we could make them, we could turn them into really good books. We've got like one to two sermons, basically, and a couple parables. But, what, but uh, in terms of his public teaching, but we have a lot of the ministry he did with his disciples. You know, John 13 to 17 might be the most important teaching Jesus gives his disciples, and it's over a, one dinner. It's over a dinner. It's not a conference center. It's at a dinner. And so what starts small multiplies out. And so, um, but here's the thing, um, multiplication, it's Jesus' way of doing things. That's what God has always called us to back in Genesis, go and fill the earth with my glory. Then in, in Matthew 28, he says, go and, 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 and um, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, command, teaching them um, uh, to obey all of the commands I've given to you. So, so he says, um, uh, go out and do this. But, but again, it, it's, it's Jesus's preferred method, but it just doesn't look successful. It doesn't look like the right way to do things. It doesn't seem big enough for a global movement. Um, uh, Brad pointed this out one time. I thought this was really, really helpful. Um, uh, addition, again, on paper, it just looks so attractive. And so uh, one time Brad talked about this idea that if, you, if, so, if someone said, hey, man, um, and this is like a really amazing thing to be offered, but someone walked up to you on the street and goes, hey, I want to give you money, and I can give you money in one of two ways, right? It's kind of like the lottery payout, you know, lump sum or overtime. Uh, I can give it to you two ways. One is I can give you $10,000 a day for 30 days. Now, as far as random deals, this is a pretty good one. <laughs> Everything you need is like, yo, what is the catch? Why are you giving me this money? This is really exciting, uh, right? And you go $10,000 a day, and he goes, or I can give you one penny, and then we'll double it each day, and we'll see where we're at after 30 days. Now, who just naturally goes, maybe you're good at math. I would naturally go, I think the penny is going to be over 300000 at the end of the 30 days. Huh? Oh, sorry, uh, I don't even know. <laughs> huh? Yeah, one one-hundredth of a dollar. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's like, I, I don't even know. Gosh, this Rand situation. All right, you guys have a general idea of one American dollar, okay? So, so, so one cent is one one-hundredth of American dollar, okay? So, so I could give you 10,000 U.S. dollars a day for 30 days, or I could give you one one-hundredth of a U.S. dollar and then double it to two one-hundredths and then four one-hundredths and eight one-hundredths. Um, and what do you think has more money at the end of the month? And if you guess the penny plan, you would be right. That would be sitting at about $10.7 million dollars quite a lot more than $300,000. But again, if you just saw the penny initially, it doesn't look high power, it doesn't look sexy. What looks sexy is, man, let's add 200 people to our church tomorrow, as opposed to let's disciple 12 and 24 and 48. But that was Jesus' method. We know it worked. How many organizations do you know that are 2,000 years deep? And so we were called to make um, disciples. Um, a disciple, the Greek word disciple uh, is, is really like the word learner, pupil, or apprentice. And I love that idea. Um, because the word implies process. It implies that no one is perfect. And so we're multiplying disciples. Um, and so we're learning to follow Jesus. It's this idea that we start in a broken, ugly place. And you and I slowly but surely start to resemble Jesus, the beautiful one, as we learn to live and love like he does. And for some of us, lead like he did. We are people in process. Some of you are like me this morning. You're riddled with insecurity. And Jesus wants to remind you. He wants to teach you how to find your identity in him, to live with 
the utmost security. And not because you're, you're, you have bravado and you're from a tough family and whatever, but because you know who you are in Jesus. Some of you have so much bitterness, it overwhelms you at times. You've been hurt deeply, and you think, I'll never be able to forgive. And, and that sadness, like I talked about yesterday, turns to anger, and you're in, you feel so angry. Some of you are filled with anxiety. You're trying to control everything. And one of the things you learn quickly if you try to control everything is you don't control nothing. And you're stressed all the time, and anxiety is just, and Jesus wants to teach you to become a person who can live in a peaceful surrender to the Father's plan for you. Some of you are full of sexual temptation. You have desires inside of you that rage for sexual, sexual intimacy in the wrong context with the wrong people. And Jesus wants to teach you how to be at the same time a fulfilled, self-controlled person. Disciples are those who have received Jesus' love in the gospel and have responded to what the go- and they've responded to that gospel to become like him. And again, disciples, the more mature they are, love Jesus, love each other like family, and they bring renewal everywhere they go. I love what it says about Jesus in John 1. It says he, he was full of grace and truth. It was like everywhere he went, grace and truth spilled out of him. He walks into a room. It's like, oh, man, there's grace everywhere. Oh, there's truth everywhere. <laughs> that is disciples of Jesus. We bring grace and truth everywhere we go and with it the kingdom. Church is the place where we learn. Now, now here's the thing. Church is the place where we learn to become like Jesus together. We add different things to each other as we disciple one another. Did you know you're not supposed to be discipled by one person? You are. His name's Jesus. But he uses his body to teach you different. There's certain people in your life who are naturally like Jesus in one way, but they're not like Jesus in another way. They might be really self-controlled, but they're really not forgiving. Or they're really forgiving, but they can't save money to save their life. Whatever it is, right? Um, Just as the family is the ideal place to learn how to grow into adulthood. I know for many of us, I know I did not have the family. I grew up in a single-parent home. I know many of us here grew up in single-parent homes. Um, That being said, I think we would all agree that if it was up to us, we would love to be in a home with a healthy mother and father. That the ideal place, not the only place, but the ideal place to learn how to grow into adulthood is in a healthy family with a mother and a father, ideally, if possible. The church family now is the ideal place to learn how to grow into mature manhood and womanhood. It's an ideal place to be nurtured, encouraged, and disciplined to become like Jesus. And this is where multiplication comes in. This is why we're so passionate about church planning. We don't want to start one church. We want to multiply churches. Again, when I, when I started Restored, I know Harbor City is not a Restored, but when I started the first Restored, our goal was to plant 10 churches in 10 years. That was our big goal. And now it seems so weak because of multiplication. We've got four churches in Southern California. I think three of them could plant a church realistically, responsibly in the next two years without even a lot of faith. You're at seven and this thing, you know, you see what I'm saying? It, it just gets going. And so for us to multiply churches, here's the thing. We need to multiply leaders. It's hard to have a family with no parents. And so multiplication means we need people to step into their leadership callings. More of you in this room are leaders than you know. I've been in a lot of conferences and a lot of rooms. I've spoken at a church of 40,000. I've spoken at a church of 10,000. Um, I've been in big rooms. This is a special room. There are a lot of gifts in this room. I don't know how you realize how privileged it is you are to, to, to be in this room. That God wants to do something special and, and multiply things up, but something that he's always done. It's special, but it's not special. 
but it only happens when, when a group of people go, all of us belong to Jesus. It's not just the leaders who are responsible for moving the mission of God forward. The current leaders, it's all of us taking more responsibility. As my kids grow into maturity in our household, they take on more responsibility. And then as you and I grow up into the family of God, as we grow into Christ-likeness, we take on more responsibility for the mission. The da- our, our dads, our Abba's family business, renewing of all things through his church. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, it says this. It's going to be good. Sorry, uh, Ephesians 4, my bad. Did you get that? Okay. John 21, sneak peek though, you guys. Get your popcorn ready. It says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Again, that it's as we speak the truth and love to one another in the church that we become like Jesus. But there are leaders that equip us to do that from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you know what part you play to build the church up in love? It's not do you play a part or not. You do. It's are you, are you playing a healthy part? And are you, are, you, are you playing your part better and better? Do you know what it is? And are you playing that um, part well? And this is what multiplication is all about. Um, people nurturing those callings and people watering those callings and seeing those things grow into leaders and churches and disciples and healthy disciples. And so, again, for the church to become all she needs to be and for more disciples to be made, we need people to walk into their callings and for many of you to walk into leadership callings. I think the majority of this room has a leadership calling on their life at some level. Don't just think elder. Think building up the church. Think jumping on a church planning team to see the gospel go to a new city or a new nation. Think leading at work, not in a way to maximize your own career, your own portfolio, but to make much of Jesus in your workplace. Where the more influence you have, the more you can make much of Jesus. And so today I want to talk um, about multiplication. I just have four quick points, but I want to talk about... um, For multiplication to happen, what do potential leaders need to do to emerge into leadership? And what do current leaders need to do to see multiplication happen? So I think for some of you today who aren't currently leaders in your minds, the first two points are going to be for you. What are some of the things you can do to cultivate and understand and grow into the leader God may want you to be? Um, And for those of you who are currently leaders, and I'm not just picking on, you know, Grant and Brendan and Kimmy and Michelle. um, It's not just elders. It's it's, it's if 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 you're a community group, if you're a life group leader, if you're a gospel community leader, if you are a worship leader, if you lead the tech team, I mean, I'm not, there, there's nothing, and if you're leading anything, um, what do you need to do and be to see multiplication happen? So, so my first one is this, is if you are a potential leader, what do you need to do to see multiplication happen? Um, the first thing is, is for many of us, we need to step out of guilt and shame. We need to step out of guilt and shame.
and uh, as we talk about this idea, I thought about um, I would bring in a guy many of you guys are familiar with, a man by the name of the uh, Apostle Peter, back when he was uh, a guy named Cephas. Jesus gave him a new name, Peter. Um, and, and I want you to um, think about the last night of Jesus' life. And, and, and they're in Jerusalem for the Passover. And, and, he, and, and he says, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. My blood that's going to be broken for you. He says, one of you is going to betray me. Um, Judas leaves. They're all freaking out. And in the midst of everyone else freaking out, Peter steps up and just goes, I don't know about these other fools, but I'm ride or die, Jesus. Even if all of these others leave you, I'm not leaving you. Till the casket drops, Jesus, I've got your back. And so Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, Peter, he cuts off a soldier's ear. Uh, Most scholars think he was probably trying to cut his head off, and he whiffed. This is not a great night for Peter. And then Jesus, in an act of grace to both the soldier who gets his ear back and Peter, who would have lost his life because he cut off a soldier's ear, heals the soldier's ear. And so Peter, the ride or die disciple, he runs and he keeps running. And then he'll end up um, outside of Caiaphas, the high priest's house, warming himself by a charcoal fire. And there are three times he will deny Jesus. The last time, most likely looking Jesus in the eyes as he's being taken away to his execution. He looks him in the eyes and says, I don't know him. That is a startling level of betrayal. Many of us have betrayed someone at a a far less level than as they're about to be taken away to their murder. He looks Jesus in the eyes as he's being tortured and says, I do not know him. I had a friend of mine who had a a boss who had kind of a falling out with. um, he, He put him down as a job reference. And when they called on the job reference, uh, he said, I've never heard of him. I don't know who you're talking about. Now, and again, I, I imagine if he saw him again, how awkward that would be. This is that on, on steroids. The guilt and shame Peter would have felt. And again, have you ever been there? You have like a moment and you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, get it together, right? You're bold and confident. You make a big promise. I'll never deny you, right? Like I'll, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And then the big time embarrassing failure follows. You caved, you fell back into that temptation again. You went back to that guy or that girl. You used that substance again. You said something hurtful to your spouse or your close friend again. You gave into your insecurity again. The gospel accounts tell us that when Peter looked Jesus in the eyes and denied him the third time, the rooster crowed right outside of Caiaphas' house. Again, I was in Israel this past January, and right next to the location of where they believe Caiaphas' house used to be, there is now a church there. And the church at the top of the steeple, it does not have a cross on top. It has a rooster. Right? Peter, man, this is like, (laughs) stick with Peter. Peter is revealed to be a coward. Peter, in some sense, is doomed to live a haunted life where he winces over his failure that night. We all those things that we look back on, for some of us a handful, for some of us more, but we go, oh, man, I don't even like to think, I wish I didn't do that. It's hard for me to believe God could forgive me for that, and I hate even thinking that I did do that. Peter's got that moment. Again, Peter, who's supposed to be this leader of the early movement of the gospel, he now seems to be like the last person you would want leading anything. 
his calling seems to be ruined. Peter at this point knows he has failed and he has failed big. And then on top of it all, Jesus rises from the dead. It's one thing to bail on your friend as he's being taken away to be murdered. It's another thing when that murdered friend rises from the dead. (laughs) It's a conundrum not many people have been in before. But for Peter, man, it's got to be awkward. Right? That first like, hey, man. (laughs) What are you doing here? And, um, and I want to look at a story in a second, but, but right before the story, we know from the text that, that Jesus, it's kind of a weird time in the disciples' lives. Jesus appeared twice to them. He's like showed up and left and showed up and left. They don't know when he's going to appear, when he's going to disappear. Like it's a weird time in their life. Um, they don't know what it means for them, the resurrection. Um, they're like, we, we had these plans. They were thrashed by the cross. We were devastated. Then he's back, but we still don't know what it looks like. And so um, they're kind of getting on with their life, and they go back north to the Sea of Galilee. And they're going to go fishing. And some people think it's because they've probably given up on their callings. Um, other people go, it was just, they had to get on with their lives. It was like, dude, we got to make a living. We got to go back to the, you know, that guy sold my fishing rig too. Got to like try to get it back from him and, and make this thing work out. So I want to pick up um, in John chapter 21 and look at, at Jesus' encounter with Peter. And again, the, the context here for us today is that for many of us, multiplication is going to require us to step out of guilt and shame, to step into a calling. Um. In John 21, verses 1 through 14, it says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing again. They're getting on with their lives. Like, we got to make some dough. Um, we got to make some rands. Um, not, they're not making pennies, that's for sure. Uh, but we got to make some money. And uh, so let's go fishing. Like, dude, we're down. Um, so they go out. And, and back in the day, you would fish at night uh, often. And uh, verse 4 says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Uh, and, and children here, um, a Scottish commentator said it's like it, it's masculine when he says, it's kind of like he's saying, lads, how, how's the fishing going? Um, I kind of envision like a coach uh, that like talks to grown men like their kids. You boys ready to play? Um, but he kind of yells out, verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now, they were not, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. So they've caught nothing. Now they seem to have caught everything. Verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment where he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. So Peter, um, again, fishing, you get really wet and stuff. So you, you like, kind of like when you go swimming now, uh, they would take off their clothes because they'd be sweating um, and they'd be covered in seawater. And so a lot of times they would put their clothes away and put it in a basket. Um, this guy gets fully dressed. So imagine throwing on your sneaks, your, your trainers, uh, throwing on your pants. And then what would cause you to get fully dressed and then dive into the water? And it's that Peter wants to get with Jesus, which is so interesting because of the space that he's in with Jesus. There's a place earlier in the Gospels where, um, where um, 
this similar thing happens. And when um, the fish are all caught, um, Peter says, um, Dude, just get out of here, Jesus. Like, I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve you. And then on, in this moment, we see that Peter, he's learned something of Jesus where he goes, man, I want to go to Jesus, um, even in failure. And he really wants to go there. He swims about 100 yards fully dressed. And so the other disciples came to the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. This is Jesus and a barbecue. Jesus, Bry at the beach. It's a great situation. It's for disciples, like, do we get Jesus? And Jesus is perfect, and he's cooking. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Again, Peter always trying to show off, always trying to one-up everyone. Uh, He goes out there. He doesn't tell Peter to do it by himself. And Peter gets his, like, his CrossFit on. 153 large fish by myself. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. It's an amazing command of scripture. It's actually, uh, Jamie and Stephen uh, Johns have this written on their kitchen wall, and it's like my favorite. I just laugh every time I see it. It makes me so happy. It's the coolest Bible verse. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Um, and, and so they have breakfast, and then Jesus basically, he pulls Peter aside, as we're going to see here. It's like, Peter, uh, you know, Peter, let's have a kind of like a post-breakfast uh, kind of walk and talk. Let's have a chat. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon John, do you love me more than these? Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a position where um, someone knows something awful about you, but you haven't been able to talk about it yet, but like you know that they know. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like you get a call from uh, maybe as a kid, you, you know, your parents or a spouse or, or a boss says, you know, uh, you know, hey, when you get home or when you get into the office, like we need to talk. Ever have that? Remember one time I ditched school, uh, I cut class, whatever. I don't know what term you guys would use here in high school. And I was at the beach. I just remember my dad called me. He's like, where are you? It's like, ah, I'm at the beach. <laughs> He's like, cool. We need to talk when you get home. Now I know. And I, it's, I know I know it's not like, dude, who won the volleyball game? Right? <laughs> And so far, Peter has seen Jesus twice, and Jesus hasn't brought in his failure up from the night he was arrested. And he probably wonders each time, like, is Jesus going to say anything? Should I bring it up? Right? Maybe he maybe he forgotten death. I don't know how memories work with resurrection, like the short term. No, he knows. It's intermod- no, he knows. Oh, this is stupid. I should just say something. And so Jesus pulls Peter aside for this post-breakfast talk, and he asks him, hey, um, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, and then Jesus said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said this to him the third time, do you love me? It seems like Peter knows what's going on. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Um, 
Jesus, um, as he moves to restore him, to restore him, it's how he restores all of us, he has to show Peter his sin so that he can cover it with his grace. Some interesting stuff happens here. There was three times that Peter denies Jesus. There are three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? Sort of reminded him of something. Um, also, around a charcoal fire is where Peter's denials go down, warming himself by the fire while Jesus is cold and in chains. Um, around a fire is where Jesus asks him, a charcoal fire, do you love me? And then he asks him, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the rest of these guys? To the guy that said, even if the rest of these guys leave you, I'm ride or die. There's this moment where he shows him his sin, but he doesn't end there. Jesus then says to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. He goes, um, I've covered you with my grace. And now he's saying, I have a calling for you as an apostle, as, an, a, past, as a pastor. Let's get going. I've, I've covered your sin. You might feel disqualified, but you know I have a clean slate. Let's begin again. That's one of the beauties of the gospel. Let's begin again. You can always begin again with Jesus. You might feel disqualified. And for now, you might be. But, but Peter is proof that in the kingdom, failure is not final. Failure is only final if we decide it's going to be final. Jesus loves to restore failures. It's all the gospels for us, failures. One scholar wrote this. He said, Jesus chose Peter to lead his church, not despite his failure, but because of his failures. His failures would put him in touch with God's grace, and God's grace is where a leader's real strength comes from. And it's a church leader's most valuable resource to be able to help others in need. And you can only pour God's grace into other people when you are filled with it yourself. Some of us need to step out of guilt and shame to step into our calling. Some of you are un unhealthy and you need to be restored for sure. You should not be leading right now. But um, even though you're not ready to lead right now, you are ready for restoration if you're ready for the process. Today. You don't have to stay in hiding. You don't have to stay in shame and guilt. You can step out and go, I'm ready to start the process of restoration. If guilt or shame is holding you back, please talk to a leader. If he could restore Peter, guys, he can restore you. And Peter's story keeps going. Like, you got to know that. Like, he, he preaches at Pentecost, 3,000, you know, probably 5,000-ish people saved. And then a, a couple years later, Brad talks about on, on Friday night, he, like, denies the gospel again. Goes into like kind of borderline heresy mode, jumps in. It's like, dude, I mean, I wouldn't let this guy be an usher. Jesus is like, apostle. But again, we know from there that that, that wasn't his, his final failure again, because one day, like Jesus predicts in this passage, he would stop cowering. He cowered to the little girl and the, and the people uh, the night of Jesus' arrest. He cowered with his like cool Jewish friends when they, when they came over, you know, he had to sit with them and he denied all, you know, the, the gospel by, by the conduct of his life. And then there'd be a point where he's called to recant Jesus again. And history tells us that, that he and his wife are crucified together because they would not renounce Jesus. And that same guy in first Peter said, um, even though you're going through fiery trials, don't give up. 
And so um, you're in process, and that's okay. You just got to get going. I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at, you can get going. You can step out of guilt and shame. You really can. So to step into our calling, we need to step out of guilt and shame. We also need to step into our giftings and develop them. Step into our giftings and develop them. This is potential leaders. This would be a quick point. 2 Timothy 1.6 says this. You guys, get ready. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of your hands. Timothy's, Paul's calling Timothy to, to do something with a gift that he received. So what I want to ask you is this, is do you know what your gifts are? And are you developing them? Um, some of us are ignorant to what our gifts are. And some of us are apathetic to what they can develop into. Say that again. Some of us are ignorant to what our gifts are. Some of us are apathetic to what they can develop into. Now, um, Grant has assured me you guys are doing a 10-week series at Harbor City on gifting and calling uh, starting in two weeks. So I'm going to save us time. Um, if you want to if you want to um, just get thinking about these things, um, there's, there's different gifts, uh, lists of gifts in the scriptures. Um, you can jot these down. You can look at these as you get ready to go into this series. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, kind of the major lists. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Um, check those things out. And again, you got a 10-week series coming up. I'd encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what your gifts are and how you can develop them. And again, you've got a great church that wants to develop them, so much so that it's doing that series. Um, so for multiplication to happen, potential leaders need to step out of guilt and shame, step into their giftings and calling. Um, what type of leaders, though, help people walk in their calling? Some of you guys are leaders in this room. You lead discipleship groups, you lead worship teams, your elders, your deacons. And, and we need leaders, um, there's two things leaders need to be. One is leaders, we need leaders who know that ministry is about Jesus and not about them. They know that ministry is about Jesus and not about them. Um, sorry, I've got a book I'm going to read from. It's amazing timing. Okay, here we go. That for a second. Um... um uh, uh, one leader in the New Testament who really understood this was a guy named John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. Uh, Baptists get too excited about that, like he wasn't a Baptist. Uh, he's definitely Jewish, uh, definitely more mystical and fun than they are. Um, just joking, just joking. Just the American Baptist, don't worry, you guys are amazing. Um, John was one of the most famous spiritual leaders in Israel, and this is what John said about Jesus from the outset of his ministry. John chapter 1, this is what he says. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So the Pharisees had sent some people to talk to John the Baptist. Like, yo, what are you about? What's your ministry about? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. There's someone who is coming. My ministry is about pointing the way to him. And when he gets here, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. To, to, to touch him is ridiculous. So he says, my whole ministry is about pointing people to Jesus. 
And when he gets here, it's going to be over for me. And then he backs that up later. Um, he ends up baptizing uh, John. Uh, Jesus ends up baptizing, sorry, John ends up, ends up baptizing Jesus. And Jesus' ministry starts taking off in Israel. And um, John's disciples seem to start getting jealous. Um, in John 3, verses 25 uh, to 29, it says this. It says, now a discussion arose between some, between some of John's disciples and a Jew, a Jewish leader, over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Now, again, the guy that you were bearing witness to, the guy that your entire ministry was about. Look, he is baptizing and they're all coming to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And so they're getting jealous, um, right, which is ridiculous because John said, I'm all about Jesus. And they're like, dude, Jesus is getting all the credit. It's like, dude, but I was just pointing to Jesus. And they get competitive, which is ridiculous, but it's what churches still do because church leadership is still pointing people to Jesus. And if these guys were like the way churches are nowadays, you'd be like, man, we got to up, up our baptism game. People are going to Jesus for baptism, right? Maybe we've got a water slide going. Free wetsuit giveaway with a baptism with JTB. Get our branding going, get our marketing going. And John essentially goes, have you forgotten what ministry is all about? And then he says what, what should be the cry of a real leader's heart. Verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. Um, John gives this picture of um, the bride and the bridegroom. And I want to read a quote um, tied to this. I just thought it was so, so helpful. It said, when John and his followers wrestled with his place in the story of the coming of the Messiah, he chose the metaphor of the friend of the groom. This is still the best metaphor for us to understand our role as leaders within the church. We are the friends of the groom. Therefore, our joy is accomplished in the coming together of the bride and the groom. Our primary relationship is actually with the groom, not the bride. The Christian, leaders, the Christian leader's love and allegiance is to the groom, and because of that, he loves, care for, serves, and protects the bride. But the bride is not his to possess or control. Think of two best friends. One falls in love. The ring is bought. The wedding is set. But the groom has an assignment with his job that sends him overseas. He can communicate with his bride-to-be over email or occasional phone calls, but the nature of his job is such that traveling back to help with the wedding details and even some of his future bride's needs is just impossible. He is, of course, distraught and not being able to be there to help her with the wedding preparation or her day-to-day -day struggles. Always weighing on him is the nagging sense that he cannot really look after her or protect her until he returns. So he reaches out to his best friends. Help me, bro. Keep an eye on her. Make sure she's okay. Make sure nothing happens to her. And if there is anything she needs, try and help her as I would. And so he does, at first for his friend. But then over time, something happens between the friend of the groom and the bride. The groom is mentioned less and less, and the relationship is less and less about the groom and more about them. Until one day the friend realizes he is in love with the bride with the way she makes him feel, important, strong, helpful, handsome, and so on. And worse, even still, she is in love with him. 
She has forgotten the groom and now loves the friend of the groom more. She has come to trust him and rely on him. And the intimacy that was meant for the groom has been stolen by the friend. This is a broken picture of ministry, counseling, discipling, and more. It is a broken picture of leadership that loses sight of its rightful place. This is why this is crucial to multiplication. And this is so easy. It's easy as a leader when people affirm you and go, thank you so much for helping me to go, yeah, I helped you. The way you, the way you pointed me to Jesus, thank you so much. It's like, yeah, Jesus, but, I, I, but I'm the one that pointed her to you. The way you preached the gospel of you, yeah, but I'm the one that preached it. Hey, man, you were, hey, bro, no worries. No, seriously, thank you. No, I, I, actually, you're right. You're right, man. I, I really helped you. I saved your marriage, dude. You're welcome. I'm glad Jesus brought you and I together so I could help you. Here's where it impacts multiplication. If leaders think ministry is about them, they won't make opportunities for others to lead. If ministry is all about making you feel like you're a big deal, then you're not going to let anyone else do ministry because they're going to be a big deal because Jesus isn't the big deal. If you live for the you're awesome from your life group or your GC, you're not going to empower an apprentice to actually lead. I've seen it all the time in churches with preachers. This past year, we've had, I think, in the last like 12 months, we've had like nine different people preach and four preach their first sermons. I'm not bragging. I guess I kind of am. Um, <laughs> but I've been in churches where the lead guy takes two weeks off for maybe a month for vacation. And other than that, he's preaching all the time. If he's there, he's preaching. We should constantly be raising people up. Um, the worship leader, uh, you know, if you're a worship leader, find your identity, you're not going to let other people lead worship. Uh, if you're a prophetic leader, an evangelist, a teacher, a counselor, whatever role you play in the kingdom, whatever leadership role you're playing, if, you, if it's about you, you will not release it to others. You'll guard it because your identity is on the line. But if we know it's about pointing as many people as possible to Jesus, then we'll train as many people as possible to point them to Jesus because we want as many people as possible to know Jesus. So we need to equip a people to do that. And so for multiplication to happen, we need leaders who know ministries about pointing people to Jesus, not themselves. But for multiplication to happen, we also need leaders to do one more thing. This is my last point. Relax. Leaders who are willing to patiently, patiently walk alongside immature disciples through their growth process. That's a long one. I'm going to read it again. We need leaders willing to patiently walk alongside Immature disciples through their growth process. So American author, and he talks about how, um, this isn't going to work because you guys don't know about American football. I'm going to change it. Um, he basically says, I'm going to, this is a freestyle analogy. He basically says that we take like the soccer goal and for the first generation of leaders, it's here. And then for the next generation, they have to be able to make goals with like half the space. And it's like they keep raising the bar for what's required to be a leader. That wasn't even the bar for them. They're like grandfathered in. But for anyone else, they need to live up to a certain standard. Um, church planning networks do this all the time. They'll start out and empower a ton of people, become a network through empowering people. And then they make it like you've got to raise $200,000 and you've got to be an expert at everything. And you might not even love Jesus, but that's a whole other thing. Um, at our church, again, we let people preach and lead worship. I, I literally will bring people up and I'll say, um, this is not going to be the best sermon you've ever heard. I actually say that. Just so you guys know, this is their first sermon. That means it's not going to be the best sermon you've ever heard. Best case scenario, it's the best first sermon you've ever heard. 
because they've never done this before and no one's an expert. No one's great at doing something the first time they do it. But I always say, but it's an honor to be here to hear this sermon because they're stepping out in faith to use their gifts. Biggest fear for most people is public speaking. They're stepping out in faith to serve you today, not confident in their gifts. And you know what? There's a good chance that this person is going to lead a church one day. And we're going to say, we were there for the first message. My daughter, Olivia, she had her first words probably three years ago now. And I'll never forget that her first words were, Ada. That's, um, that's Victorian English for father. Right? Ada. And, and when she said Ada, we got pumped, dude. Cameras were out. And we're like, say it again. My, my boys were like, live, say it again. Say it, live, say it again. Live, say it again. And, 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 and again, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the best use of the word dad in the English history. I've heard better talking before. It wasn't even dada, it was ada. But we got our phones out. It wasn't because we're like, man, this is just so amazing. She's reorienting the English language to be more efficient, and we got to capture it. She knows the Aramaic word. It's Abba, Abba, and she's close. No, you know what? It was her first words, and she's our family. And so we're pumped for the moment. Like, we're pumped for the moment. And it's the same thing. Um, we have to give people opportunities to get up and fail. I remember one time, I feel like it was one of the most demonic things I've ever heard in my life, actually. One time I was meeting with a guy, I don't think he's even a believer. He was a big deal, and he was kind of used to being a big deal. He was superintendent of a school district. Um, if he hears about it, I don't even care. Um, hopefully he doesn't listen to this, but it's fine. Um, but we had a, a, a young, fragile, pre- first sermon ever, and I did what I just said. First time you've ever heard it, but they're learning. And he got up, and the guy, 10 minutes in, he walked out. And then he confronted me about a week later. He's like, I think it was just a waste of everyone's time. You would put this guy up there. He doesn't even know what he's doing. So he did know. We prepped him. He said, you know, he just, he just talked for so long about the same thing. And, and there was just no grace for someone's development process. And, and so it takes people time. There's a learning curve. When I was thinking about Eugene, did you really just learn to play guitar in the last, like, three years? Is that real? Dude, the way he led us Friday night was remarkable. Do we have space for people to, to learn to pick up a guitar and play? Again, it takes longer than it takes to hire a guy or put someone up who's gifted, who doesn't have character. But man, that's a, that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a privilege to be led by Eugene. It's more of a privilege than it is to bring in Matt Redman randomly. Matt Redman's amazing, but, but for your church to go, hey, we raised this guy up. We had grace for him to learn. It probably didn't always sound like it did the other night, I'm guessing. He probably grew into it. But there was grace for that. Character weaknesses. I've had people, they have to grow through things, some deep stuff. But they keep coming forward, and then stuff happens less and less, and they become someone new. A lot of people over the years have had to have the same conversations with certain people. And it's remarkable how slow they are. But it's remarkable how short it is that they do grow and change, that they keep following Jesus. The idea that it takes a while for leaders and disciples to mature was actually driven home from me a few years ago here in South Africa. Um, Brad, Tom, and I, we went out, we went to go preach. Um, I, oh, I went to preach. I think Tom went to thirst for something, um, but there's a couple of us. And we went to preach at a Zulu-speaking church in Moy River. You guys know the area. And, um, and we went there, and it's a unique church because it's Zulu language, um, but it was led by, like, a white family who had moved from, like, England to, like, help start a nonprofit and, like, a food distribution thing. 
and um, and, uh, and they also started a church. And so the worship songs are in Zulu. They have all Zulu bands, um, um, some women who are, who are going for it. And then the pastor preaches in English, and there's a Zulu translator. That meant I had a translator. You know how fast I talk? She had her work cut out for her. The service started, and, um, and I was really blown away. I was like, hey, is this, wait, is this the main service, or is this the kids' ministry? Because, like, easily 70% of the room was children. And, uh, and he ended up saying, you know, I ended up talking to this lady, and she said, well, a lot of them are our AIDS orphans, or they've been abandoned. And so there's a lot of grandmas, a lot of adopted grandmas, a lot of amazing women who have taken these guys in. And the only men in the room actually were bus drivers in the back who had brought them in for the day. Um, they weren't a part of the church. And so this whole church is just basically women and children. They get a boat from the Titanic, but just women and children. And um, bad joke, I'm sorry. <laughs> too soon on the Titanic, I know. It's just too much. <laughs> After the gathering, we're having lunch. Uh, me, Brad, and Tom, and some other people, we're having lunch. And Tom asks, uh, Tom or Brad, one of the two, asks this guy leading the church. Um, he said, hey, are you... Um, do you have any potential elder candidates? You know, again, you know, we've seen the kids you guys are mentoring. We've seen some of the food distribution stuff. We've seen the farm. Saw the service. Um, do you have any potential elder candidates? And he said, I do, um, but they're probably, like, out on that field playing soccer right now. And they're probably 10 to 12 years old right now. But I have some amazing young men that I think could be great elders. And I was thinking about this, again, that is a ridiculous leadership development timeline. Um, but think about how much ministry, and you, you know, Eugene talked about this the other day, but how much ministry 20 well-mentored kids could do who are discipled for 10 years. When they hit 19, they're ready to go. And um, that's the power of multiplication. And so I just want to say, um, man, do we have leaders who are patient to walk alongside immature disciples through the growth process? We need all of this for multiplication. And so I'm going to call the worship team up um, to go into a little time of response. Is that cool? And um, I want to call out a couple couple of, of people. Um, I think some of us, we do feel um, the shame and guilt thing. Like we, we, we need to step out of it. Okay. And stepping out of it doesn't mean people are like, no big deal. you got an addiction. We're not going to talk about it. We're going to live in denial. No, no, no. It means I've got an addiction. I want help so I can walk into the thing God has for me. Um, I think some of us shame and guilt's there. Jesus wants to, to set you free like Peter and go, hey, I've got a calling for you. Here's what we need to do to make it happen. But, but I have a calling for you. I encourage you to, 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 we'd love to pray for you today. I think there's another group of leaders, if you're honest with yourself, and it is, it's awkward to say it, but you may have made ministry more about you than about Jesus. It's an epidemic. You're not alone in this. I think it's Satan's main tactic. Uh, it's just crazy how unhealthy churches get, and so much of it seems to be tied to that reality. Most of the guys who fall, they're not these guys, amazing guys who've done everything to point people to Jesus most of the time. They've made ministry about them for a while, if you were paying attention. They have a website with their name. Got a jet with their name on it. They've got, you know, um, uh, picture, you know, books. You know, always a picture of them on the book. Um, whatever it is, it's, it seems to be promoting themselves um, before. But but if you, for you, maybe not that far along. But but for you, if you're here and you go, man, if I'm honest, I've made ministry more about me than Jesus, and part of my insecurity would keep me from empowering people. Um, we'd love to pray for you as well. And then lastly, if you're here and, and you go, man, um, I just feel like I've discipled people. And honestly, like, it just takes forever, and I'm, like, tired. I want to I pray for you as well that you wouldn't grow weary in doing good. story I was telling um, Tom, uh, not Tom, Grant and Brendan about 
about, um, it's a story church history ascribes to the Apostle John. Um, but the Apostle John essentially was discipling this guy. And imagine, so he's discipling this guy. Imagine you're discipled by John who was discipled by Jesus, okay? It's a great discipling situation. And it says that this guy abandoned John to become the leader of a band of rabbits. Ra- uh, ra- <laughs> robbers, not rabbits. It's like an insane Disney movie. <laughs> band of rabbits with Kevin Hart. He abandoned the Apostle John to become the leader of a band of robbers. (laughs) Now, all jokes aside for a second, if you're discipling someone and they abandon you to, like, lead a gang, you're pretty bummed out. But but the story goes that, 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 that John committed himself to pray and fast until that disciple came back so that he could put him over the church to lead it again. And so for you, you might be thinking, man, people are taking a long time. Again, I want you to remember how Jesus is patient with you. And remember that Jesus is a better disciple than you, and you are where you're at. I want um, to, to challenge you to not grow weary in doing good. It's going to take time. Okay, so if you want prayer, um, yeah, obviously we have a bunch of leaders here at the front. Um, for any of those things, we'd love to pray for you. The Shame and Guilt one especially, I encourage you guys to get with your leaders for follow-up. Uh, it's probably going to be more than what we can even do today. Um, but again, I'd love to see multiplication happen. Get these, these barriers out of the way. And we see so many people proclaim Jesus so that so many people would love, adore, and worship Jesus into all the nations of the earth. So I'm going to pray. We'll go into worship. Father, I think about the story of, um, of Abraham, and I think about how you promised him the nations. He would be the father of many nations, and then he fails, and then Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations, and they fail, and then Jesus comes as the true light. He lights our little torches and says, hey guys, if you want to come out with me onto this adventure, we can light up this whole world. We can cover the earth with God's glory the way that the, the seas cover the earth. And he calls us this life of intimacy and adventure. I pray, God, that you would call people into more today. And I pray that you would, you would envision leaders to want to develop others to be more. God, for us as leaders, God, would you give us open hands with the people you've entrusted to us, as scary as that is, both to develop them and to release them. Spirit, would you pour out gifts on men and women that they don't have yet for the assignments that you do have for them? Would you do more than we could ask or imagine in this time? In Jesus' name, amen.